Thank you to our musicians, and I invite you to find in your Bibles the Gospel of John, chapter 13. The Gospel of John, chapter 13. We're going to read the first 30 verses. John chapter 1, or John 13, verse 1. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know who I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my feet, excuse me, he who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is God's holy word. 
two weeks ago, and the privilege of taking this passage from John 13 as we work our way through the book of John, the Gospel of John, and went through in some detail the exposition of this chapter and explaining the flow of thought, and uh, I'm not going to repeat that. This is really part two of uh, uh, this two-part message in, in this chapter. Today I want to get into some very practical things that flow from it. So if you would, uh, if you find some things strange about what I say and want to know why I understand the, the, the passage to mean what it means, then the best thing would be to go back to that message that's available to you and, and you can uh, go through that. Basically what I said in, in that message was that what we're experiencing here in the upper room is Jesus is doing something what I coined a cultural conversion. He has done this throughout his ministry. He's taken ordinary events and things of life and elevated them and, and, and reinterpreted them into a spiritual lesson. It was very common in that day for in the Middle East that a servant would wash the feet of guests. But having been negligent to do that, Jesus arose from the table and started washing his disciples' feet. And he told them that what he was doing was not obvious to them. So he's taken the act of foot washing and elevated it to a spiritual act. And I showed you, hopefully successfully and accurately, that Jesus was saying that amongst his disciples, they were all clean in the sense that they have been forgiven and justified and made right with God. But the daily walk of their lives also needs to be cleansed. Their daily experience is tainted and they need to be forgiven and washed in the word. Our daily life, our daily walk, our daily existence consistently, almost moment by moment, if we could do this as sinners saved by grace, needs to be cleansed through the washing of the Word. And they had the incarnate Word in their presence washing their feet. Jesus makes two stunning statements. The first is found in verse 8 where Jesus says to Peter that if Peter would not allow him to wash his feet, and I pointed out that the, the grammar indicates that we're talking about the feet, which is stunning. If Peter does not allow the Lord to wash his feet, to put this in the spiritual realm. If Peter does not wish to have the word wash the, his daily walk and his daily toils and his daily experience, then Jesus says, you can't be part of me. That's stunning. That's absolutely stunning. It's certainly confirmed, as we will see in other passages in the Scriptures, 
But that's stunning. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus says another thing that I think is stunning. He says to these disciples, just as they've witnessed him doing that with one another, they should follow his example and leave this place and they should wash one another's feet. Meaning that the role of the disciple is to apply the washing of the word to one another. So Jesus is saying in this passage that regular confession of sin is evidence that you have been justified and clean. In other words, the evidence that you're clean, that I'm clean, is that I will daily have my feet, my walk through this world washed by the Word. And Jesus is also saying that the body of Christ, brothers and sisters, ought to wash one another's feet. And he's not talking about some ordinance or practice. He's talking about the fact that you as my brothers and sisters need to feel the weight of responsibility to come to me when you notice that I am erring, I am sinning before God, and you need to come in love and humility and service to me and apply the washing of God's Word to my life. Notice verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one I sent. Jesus says here, when you come to me and say, Jim, I love you, and there's something going on in your life that is clear and needs to be turned away from and washed in the word that I am to receive you even as Christ would come to me. And that to reject you is not to reject a human being, it's to reject Jesus Christ, the Savior. That's stunning. It's absolutely stunning. So in summary, those who are redeemed are positionally clean. Let's remember that today as we talk. Those who are redeemed are positionally clean. Our, our position before the courtrooms of heaven is justified. There is no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. But those who are redeemed need regular washing of the word to cleanse our daily transgressions. Those who are redeemed must go, be willing to go to other disciples with the word in humble service seeking to correct and restore them from their daily transgressions. And finally, those who are redeemed should go to one another as Christ would go. And the one should receive one another as Christ is coming to them. That's a review, that's a summary of the message.
There are a couple questions that come out of this all the time when I and others preach on passages like this. And I'm going to try to answer those questions this morning. I hope this is practical for you. The first question, probably a question that I have been asked almost at every Q&A I've ever conducted. And the question goes this way. If I have truly been forgiven of all my sin, then why do I have to confess daily sins? That's the first question I'll attempt to answer. The second question, and that came to me almost instantly after I left the pulpit that Sunday two weeks ago. How do I do that? How do I go to a brother and sister and obey what the scriptures are calling me to do? So I'm going to attempt to answer that this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we desperately love the truth of your word. We wallow in the truth of your word. But we also, as the redeemed people of God, want to obey it. We want to be doers of the word. So help us to see the practicality of this that exists within the body of Christ. Help us to be clear about how to please you. Grant me help from heaven to say these things clearly, lovingly, kindly. Help us to have ears to hear and hearts to believe and wills to obey. In Christ's name, amen. So why do we as Christians have to keep confessing sin. It would make sense that as you know, and many of you could quote it with me, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But turn in your Bibles just briefly to Hebrews chapter 10. Book of Hebrews chapter 10. stealing Pastor Josh's thunder, but it'll take him a while to get here in Hebrews. I might be a very much older man by the time he gets to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 11 and 12. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now jump to verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There is a reality that when you and I come in faith to Jesus Christ, we are made perfect. We are forever perf perfected. We are clean, using John 13's words. 
then why do we need to confess our sins if they've already been forgiven for all time? Let me give you two answers that I believe there may be more. And the first comes directly from the text in John 13. You and I are to daily, regularly, throughout the day, confess sins, sins that have already been positionally forgiven. I know this is concept is hard, but just, just, just believe the words I'm saying. We are to confess sins that have already been paid for on the cross. We are to acknowledge sins that have already been paid for on the cross. We're to acknowledge them so that we might be forgiven in reality, in actuality, in life. The first answer, because it's evidence that in fact they have been paid for on the cross. The evidence that you and I are Christians is that we will grow in sensitivity to sin and be very conscious of sin within ourselves and acknowledge. That's the word confess. The word confess means to I agree with God that that was sinful. There are a number of things in the Bible that we do as an evidence that we are Christians. They don't make us a Christian. They are proof that in fact we are a Christian. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. What's he teaching us there? He's teaching us that one of the evidences that I am born of the Spirit and redeemed is that I have a nature now that longs to forgive. And to withhold forgiveness means something's wrong. A Christian is someone who pursues holiness. To become a Christian? No. That would be impossible. But if you are saved and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you will by nature want to pursue holiness. In fact, if you don't, you won't see God. Hebrews 12, 14. We are to persevere in our faith. We are to do good works. James says that so well. They are evidences that we're a Christian. And here is another evidence that I'm saved and you're saved. Is that I become very conscious of my personal transgressions before God. And I seek regularly to go to 1 John 1, 9 and confess them and receive the promised forgiveness. In fact, in 1 John 1, 9, the word confess, I know you don't love Greek lessons, either do I, but the verb confess is in the present active tense, meaning that this is an ongoing activity in all of us if we're Christians. In other words, you could paraphrase that verse quite well by saying, if we keep on confessing our sin all the time, giving linguistic evidence to the fact that that is something that is, ought to be consistent with someone who is truly saved. So the first reason, if you were to ask me, Pastor Jim, why 
Should we confess sins if that sin was already paid for on the cross? The answer is it gives evidence that you are indeed saved. It gives evidence that you and I are indeed saved. The second reason is when we place our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, we are then justified and the very next thing that happens, and I'm not trying to create a timeline like, like bingity-bangity-bong, uh, we're talking about eternal things that happen. Uh, theologians call it the order of salvation, and you really can't do that because it happens so quickly from conversions to faith and justification. But the very next thing that happens once you and I are justified in God's timetable is he adopts us into his family. He becomes our Father, which is amazing. And so when our sins are forgiven and, and we've trusted in Christ and He has justified us, He adopts us into His family, we become His children. Now all of us here this morning are part of a family. And we know that things can happen in the family that cause tension. And the same thing happens in our relationship with God our Father. If a son, a human son, does something wrong in a family, then the relationship between that son and that father is, is strained. It's marred. The fellowship is no longer sweet. There's not that sense of happiness in the home. Are you understanding me? And what needs to happen for that to be restored? And the answer is that a son then goes to dad and says, Dad, I've, I've sinned. And the happiness and the fellowship and the joy are restored. Now, no father, no loving father, when the son sins, is going to say, you're no longer my son. And neither will your heavenly father, may I remind you. No loving father would ever say, you didn't take the garbage out, you're out of my will. Change your last name, you're gone. Your toast, your history. That's not going to happen. But the relationship is going to be somewhat strained, isn't it? When that son has done something wrong. And that relationship is restored. When the son goes to dad and says, Dad, forgive me. Fellowship occurs again. Joy is restored. Now John, the author of John's Gospel, also wrote 1 John. And he's the author that said, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's verse 9. Am I correct? Verse 4 says, I write these things unto you that you might have joy. The reason we confess sins that has already been forgiven is so that we can have joy. What did David say in Psalm 51, verse 12, after confessing his sin of adultery and murder? After confessing it before God, 
What did David say? He said, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. So there's two reasons, beloved, why I believe it's critical for you and I as Christians, as Christians, to be very sensitive to our sin, to confess our sin and deal with it, even though that sin has been covered in Calvary's cross. One, it proves, in fact, we are Christians. And secondly, it gives us a restoration of joy and fellowship with the Father that was earned and paid for by Jesus Christ, the Son, on Calvary's cross. That's the first question that I often get from this text. The second question is, how do I go to another Christian and apply correction? How do I actually do that? Let me just walk with you through some steps. Remember the point in John 13 is that Jesus, as the incarnate word, is showing us that we need to be washed by the inspired word throughout the day. And that even as he did it for his disciples, we are to do it also for one another. That's not an alien concept in the Bible. We may not preach on this enough, and that I would require your forgiveness. But it is not an alien concept in the Bible to suggest that you and I have a responsibility to one another to point out in love and bring correction in love to one another's transgressions. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for one another. As I read these scriptures, is this happening in your life? Are you in such a relationship, either in your marriage, in your small group, in your, in, in, in your, uh, your faith community, the smaller community within this church? Are you a person today who is saying, yes, I'm in a relationship with others in the body of Christ where I find that I'm constantly able to confess my sin and have people pray for me? And I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but I'll tell you something. I think the general answer in this congregation this morning, if I could be so pointed, not to be harsh, but to be kind, I'm pretty sure that most of you just answered no. Most of you answered no. That means most of us here today need to get right with God's Word. Hebrews 3.13 says, Exhort one another every day. Now notice, one another. Exhort one another every day so that you won't become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, when we don't confess our sin daily, we start to, it becomes calloused and, and, and becomes hard. We get to the point where we don't even think we have sin. 1 John 1, 7, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. I want to ask you a question. Are you in a relationship where you're being exhorted every day? That's a little tougher than the first question, isn't it? 
is that your pastor needs to have someone in his life that is willing to say hard things every day. Every day. You go one day without that exhortation and there's an increasing hardness that comes into our hearts and we get deceived. Oh, I'm not that bad a person. Oh, that was just a small thing. Don't worry about it. It'll pass away. Exhort one another daily. I'll say something trying to be humorous. I mean, you can debate till the cows come home about old earth theory and young earth theory and what a day is, but I'm going to tell you something. This is a 24-hour day. It's every day we need this exhortation in our life. Colossians 3.13 Bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Okay. Here's some points. I'll try to go quickly. I, I don't want to... Got Sunday school, and that's important. I'll try to go quickly. Here's some points. How do you go to someone when you recognize a transgression in their life and you love them enough to go to them? A classic book, by the way. I, I just thought of this. Uh, I didn't prepare to plan to say a classic book on this. I read 30 years ago. It was written by a, a guy by the name of David Augsburger. And the title of the book is Caring Enough to Confront. And he reframed the, the idea of confronting someone and he changed the word to carefronting them. I care enough that I'm going to go to them. So how do you do that? Number one, the issue is an obvious, obvious sin. In the passages we read in the Scripture, it said, if anyone sins against you, Galatians 6, 1, if a brother is caught in a trespass. In other words, you don't go to people on suspicion of evidence. You go when you see the sin. It's there in front of you. It's in your face. I was absolutely shocked years ago. And you'd be shocked if I told you who it was. Someone came to me and they said, Oh yes, I pray for the church every day. And I pray that the Lord would reveal to me a hidden, a hidden sin in, in, in someone's life so that I can go to them and be, and be a, a loving confrontation to them. Beloved, that's baloney. The Bible says you don't invent sins. You don't, you don't try to uh, con- conceive of them. or contri- They're there before your face. Many years ago, Pastor Jason was counseling at a local Bible camp. And he was coming into town for supplies and he was going back out. He stopped at Tags to get fuel. He went into Tags to get fuel and saw a counselor from the camp that he was in at the magazine rack buying a pornographic magazine. Beloved, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. You need to do something. It's there before your eyes. And it is unloving. 
to coin this in a different way using the words of someone else, how much do you have to hate somebody not to point out that that's wrong? So we're not looking for witch hunts. We're not looking to go sneaking around closets. We're saying that when it's in front of you, you and I are called to deal with it. That's point one. Point two is our attitude is important. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. And as I say this point, I'm saying, I wonder how my attitude is. I'm getting kind of loud and rambunctious, aren't I? <sighs> Galatians 6 says, those who are spiritual should go to a brother and sister to restore them. Now right away I heard a great gasp in the audience and all of you said, great, I'm not spiritual, that's somebody else's job. Let me deal with that, because you're not right. In context, and I'm doing stuff really fast here, in context to be spiritual means to be living and walking in the Spirit, Galatians 5.16. And may I remind you that if you're not walking in the Spirit and you're walking in the flesh, you're not a Christian. So that's the first point. You and I are to be walking in the Spirit. It also means to those who are spiritual more precisely, it means those who are expressing and exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, humility, gentleness. That's what it means to be spiritual. And you say to me, well, Pastor Jim, I'm still not spiritual. Someone else has to do it. It's a command to be filled with the Spirit. It's a command. So there's not a single person here this morning in the sanctuary who is a Christian who can get out of this. There is no exit out of this text. You who are spiritual, go and restore. And we're to do it in gentleness. We do it in gentleness. We do it with fear and trembling and humility. You and I wouldn't want to go to a doctor. You wouldn't want to go to a physician. But when he or she sees us come in the office, they just start getting really happy and rubbing their hands and saying, good, I get to cut you open. Then you would go to a vet instead. Can I just say personally, to go to someone and correct them, you ought to feel sick in your stomach. You ought to have so many butterflies you think you're going to faint. You ought to be scared spitless. It should be something you don't really want to do. And when you feel that way, then you're going to have an attitude of humility and gentleness. Thirdly, you go with the intent to restore. I get that from Galatians 1 and 2. You go with the intent to restore. You're going to be helpful. You want to be edifying. 
a couple years ago, a few years ago, I spoke at a men's retreat and I was speaking on this topic. And I said to them, as I said to you, and some of you know this to be true because you've come to see me. One of the first things I say after the facts are out on the table as I say to you, and the Lord has taught me this, I take no glory in this, but I say, how can I help you do what's right? I say those exact words. How can I help you do what's right? That's the attitude. Helping. Restoring. And by the way, if you want to have some great reading this afternoon, read the, Paul's letter to Philemon. And there you have a perfect example how a brother exhorts another brother. And in verses 8 and 9 in Philemon, Paul said, and there's much, much more there, but Paul said, I could come to you as an apostle. I could come to you with authority. But I come to you as a brother. I come to you as a brother. We're in the same family. We have the same father. You come to somebody intent to restore Number four, the Bible gives us a process, and we read that this morning in the Scripture lesson, Matthew 18, 16 to 17. There's a process to go through. If there's a failure at Elk Point Baptist Church, if there's a failure in Jim McClellan, I'll tell you something. The failure is that even though sometimes we might go to somebody and point out an obvious transgression that needs to be dealt with, but we stop there. If there's any failure to be owned this morning, it's this. We do not follow the, the teaching of God's Word, and when the person says, no, I don't agree with you, or the person says, blow it out your ear, or the person says, like someone, someone said to me once, this is my business, not yours, I don't want to hear about it. And you go take two or three with you. If that doesn't work, then you go to the church. And the church has a responsibility. There is a process to be followed. And lastly, number five. Lastly, number five. Based on what we read in John 13, again, verse 20. Remember that when you go, and you go under the auspices of the Word of God, filled with the Spirit of God, when you do that, you go in Jesus' name and He's there. You need to know that. You need to know that when you do that hard, most difficult thing of in humility and tears going to your brother or sister and saying, I need to talk to you about this, 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 this sin in your life. You go in the power and the blessing of Jesus Christ. Matthew 18.20, which we read earlier, said, Where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. Many times I've heard that said at a Bible study or a prayer meeting. Haven't you? It's snowing out, the wind is blowing, two or three people show up and 
Somebody says, well, when two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst. That's totally taken out of context, if I might add. In fact, let me say this. If one of you is there, Jesus is there. That's not the point. The point is that in matters of caring enough to confront somebody, when you go with someone else, you go in the power of the risen Savior. His glory and His power and His presence and His blessing are there. That's the context. And that should be incredibly encouraging. Incredibly encouraging. And those of us who are here this morning who are listening and still saying to ourselves, oh, I can't do that. You ought to shake your heads. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And when you go out of love and compassion and true sincerity to someone you love and say, you've got to deal with this issue, you go in the power and the authority and the blessing and the promises of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. And shame on you for thinking otherwise. Unfortunately, in the church, in this church, in our church, we've adopted several different ways of dealing with this over the past, haven't we? The first thing is that sometimes we see someone who has an obvious transgression that they're dealing with, and we go to option one, and we just say, I hope that goes away. I just... Hope I'll wake up, I'll pray for them, and just hope that one day I'll it'll get fixed. Or sometimes, and this is what happens most often, and this ought to be terribly convicting for me and for you, sometimes all we do is go talk to someone else about it, and then for we sin in gossip. Sometimes, and this happens often enough, we thought, well, this is not not something I want to do, so I'll ask the pastor or the elders to do it for me. None of those answers are right. Centuries ago, Charles Haddon Spurgeon penned these words in his sermon from this text. Please let me read them to you. In the world, they criticize. By the way, I thought this was written in 2020. In the world, they criticize. This is the business of the public press. And it's very much the business of private circles. Hear how gossips say, Do you see that spot? What a terrible walk that man must have had this morning. Look at his feet. He has been very much in the mire. You can see. For there are traces upon him. That's the world's way, Spurgeon writes. Christ's way is very different. He says nothing. 
He takes up the basin and begins to wash away the stain. Do not judge and condemn, but seek the restoration and improvement of the erring. I love that quote. So, beloved, if I've properly understood John 13, if I have properly understood it, if I've properly interpreted it, if I've properly preached it, if I've properly applied it to my life and yours, it fits in well with a multitude of the New Testament teaching that we are called before God to wash one another's feet. We are called before God to go to an erring brother or sister and apply the word of God to their life, seeking to restore them, seeking to care for them and bear their burdens with them. Hear the words again of our Savior as I close. John 13. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And watch this. This is a beatitude in the Gospel of John. Blessed, verse 17, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them. As the worship team comes to lead us in a closing number, let us pray. We would err, Heavenly Father, if we thought for a moment that we can duck the conviction that's in this text. We as individuals and we as a church have seen sin in each other's lives and we've hoped it went away. Or worse, we've gone and talked about it to other people. Or we've hoped someone else would handle it and we don't have to. Father, we need your forgiveness. It's us, oh Lord, it's us that are in need this morning. sinned against the clear instruction of your word. We have denied the power that is promised and we have forsaken the blessing that's given. And we have fallen to the fear of man instead of giving you honor and glory. 
Cause us to walk in your ways. Cause us to be obedient. Lord, it's possible this morning that there's someone here this morning when they hear this teaching, they realize that they've never been saved. They've never been born again. This is all just a joke. It's just silliness to them. Thank you, Lord, that you love the world so much that you sent your Son to die for people like that. And if they will believe in you, they will not perish but have eternal life. To God be the glory.